Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Robert Schuller, the Arthur M. Oaken Professor of Economics at Yale University. His latest book is The Subprime Solution. Robert, welcome to Econ Talk. Glad to be here. Now, you argue in the book uh, that the, sub, the current housing situation could lead to catastrophic consequences for the economy as a whole. Uh, what's the source of the current crisis, and why is it so dangerous? Why are you so uh, pessimistic? Well, I, I don't know that I'm pessimistic, but I think uh, this country has in the past risen to the challenges of economic crises. So I, I give a comparison with the Great Depression. Of course, economists love to talk about the Great Depression, and I don't want to be um, alarmist either, <laughs> that alarmist. But uh, in, the, in that episode, that was our worst economic crisis. Uh, we pulled together in many different ways, and I think the uh, spirit of um, that we are going to solve this problem together helped uh, make it from being worse. Uh, And I think that that's what we need. Again, um, capitalism is a wonderful invention, but it has to have a a substrate uh, that uh, a popular sense that we all support this and it's it's all for us. Uh, What's been happening with the current, what's most disturbing about the current crisis is the sense that some people have been ill-treated uh, and are not being helped. So who are those folks, and, and what is the nature of the crisis? Well, the, you know, it's a, it's a complicated... You know, History is always complicated, and it's difficult to point out who is needy or who is uh, guilty. Uh, that's, that's the problem with, with uh, human affairs. Uh, the, it, it's, and, and another thing about most crises in history is that their foundation, they're absurd, or they don't make any sense. Uh, and this one doesn't make any sense. I, I think it was driven by uh, a sequence of speculative bubbles, notably the stock market bubble in the 1990s, which had an interruption and then resumed for a while, an interruption in 2000 until 2003, and then a new r- revival of the boom. But even more so, it was the housing bubble that, that happened. So, uh, Explain what you mean by a bubble. Yeah, well, that is... Uh, uh, a term that doesn't have a well-agreed-on definition. I think uh, to many people, a bubble is defined as uh, an unwarranted asset price boom. It's not related to fundamentals, so. Yeah, that, I think that's... And, and so a bubble is defined by the fact that it will burst. Um, so in that story... That's not my definition. Okay, go ahead. Um <laughs> uh, I, I have my own definition, which I gave on page two of the second edition of my book, Irrational Exuberance. Uh, and uh, my definition looks a little bit more like a DSM-4 definition. You know, DSM is the, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Psychiatrists. And so okay. you try to define a mental illness, and it's very slippery and hard to define. So you list a bunch of symptoms that uh, rec- that you recognize as characteristic of that syndrome but not necessarily all present. Okay. And so for me, a speculative bubble is a situation where there are a sequence of price rises for some speculative asset, which generates a kind of social epidemic. It generates contagion for certain ideas, ideas that may have been in the back of people's minds and not prominent, that suddenly are pushed forward and become prominent in their thinking. Typically, New era stories, some story why the economy is fundamentally different now. And also it generates feelings of envy. There are stories of others uh, trading successes or become prominent in people's ideas. The idea that uh, I should get into this because that's the thing that's going on now and everyone's doing this and I ought to, uh, I ought to be doing it too to prove my worth as a human being. Your sense of yourself, actually going beyond what I said in the book, but your sense of yourself changes for a while. You become 
more self-confident because you think you've discovered your true investing genius. Uh, so the prices keep accelerating up and up as more and more people are drawn into this. Uh, and it becomes a climax of national attention. And why does it end? Well, it can't go on forever because what we have is prices rising because people expect them to rise further in the future. And there, of course, has to be a limit. Uh, you know, uh, they just can't go up forever. For example, if we're all millionaires, some of us are going to want to sell. We're not going to all hang in there forever. And then if prices are no longer going up, uh, then there's there's an end to the assumptions that supported them. That's very complicated. This, by the way, is not my invention. Uh, the idea of a bubble goes back uh, hundreds of years, uh, and I'm just trying to uh, articulate it. Uh, well, one of the most interesting things, I think, in the book, especially for people who are new or, uh, as I am somewhat, to the... Uh, to the financial um, – to the analysis of these kind of financial assets is the role of psychology. And you draw on the behavioralist approach and talk about this as a social contagion as you just did. And I think it's a very it's a very provocative and intriguing idea, and there's certainly a lot of truth to it as anyone who has ever uh, bought a stock or a house or an asset uh, at a time like this. The feeling of being left out, the feeling you're missing out on something if you, if you don't participate – uh, certainly, there's emotional and psychological aspects to it. But the question that's, I think, difficult in these kind of explanations is they're much easier ex post than they are ex ante. That is, after the fact, we can look back if the bubble does indeed pop. But at the time, there are usually some real effects that are consistent with uh, the rise in, in prices. True, people tend to overemphasize those to and maybe ignore signs that, that it's not real. But how do you distinguish between real changes and psychological changes in ex ante, before the fact? Well, that's everyone's problem. Uh, and I sense that people are thinking about that. And the better equipped they are to think about that, the fewer bubbles we'll have. Uh, right? I mean, it's, it, it's a matter of uh, enlightenment. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry to say this. I, I, I'm not putting myself up as the authority on bubble, I'm saying we're all, everyone was thinking about these. Uh, and I think that if they think about bubbles as a phenomenon, that they will learn earlier to recognize them. People did, you know, people did recognize this bubble and they recognize other bubbles. That's what ends them uh, often, or basically that's what ends them. Of course, one of the challenges is, is that if, if you think you are uh, wiser than the herd, and of course sometimes you are, but if you think you're wiser than the herd, uh, and the herd is pushing up prices, sometimes there is a temptation to go along with the herd anyway, because it, oh, is, yeah, a self, right. it is a self-fulfilling prophecy, at least for a while, and there's an inevitable temptation to try to ride that rise upward as long as you can bail out at the right time. Yeah, this is an important topic that has been studied by some theorists, who, who uh, Schleifer and Vishni and uh, I think of uh, others, uh, who wrote about that? Yes, that in fact, that is a prominent part of the reason. That's part of the reason why bubbles are are so inscrutable. Because it's not like recognizing it's a bubble means you'll work against it. If you look at this recent real estate boom that we had or bubble from 2000 and 2006, it was going on year after year after year. I mean, we had six years of phenomenal price increases. And you know, you think seriously about this. If I can. You know, it, it, it's not going to change overnight. Uh, I can pretty sure, assuredly get in and sell a property in a, a year's time without much risk of loss. Um, and so, in a sense, many of the people who were driving the bubble were smart. It's just the people who piled in at the very end. Um, get left holding. Uh, yeah, yeah, and that's one of the ironies of, of a bubble, that, especially real estate bubbles, not so much stock market boom, because... The serial correlation there is not as prominent, but it was just so prominent. Uh, we had prices going up at a faster rate every year for a sequence of years. So, I mean, it. Of course, on the flip side, it's very. Um, the transactions costs of moving in and out of the housing market are much, much higher than in and out of the stock market. So, there is. You say it's easy to get out quickly if you have to, but that's 
that's a that's a dangerous that's a dangerous. Well, I, I'm not in the position of counseling anyone to do this. Yeah, <laughs> especially I know. not right now. Yeah. Um, let me move on to let me. I want I want to move on to two things. Uh, one, I want to challenge this idea that there was a bubble, and I I, I know that's a little bit uh, contrarian given given the current situation. But I also want you to before I do that, I want I want you to clarify the subprime aspect of this. So uh, there's sort of two ways you might think about the current housing market. One is it's an asset bubble, as you're, as you're saying, and it pops and it has systemic effects, which I also want to talk about. But there's a different interpretation, which is that, well, you know, it wasn't really a run-up. There was a run-up in housing prices. It may have had some bubbly aspects, but the, the crisis part of it is in the subprime uh, market where foreclosures play uh, a very uh, depressing and, and human side to this story and to the implications of the securitization of those subprime mortgages for other financial institutions. And that's a separate problem. Now, I know they're related, but talk about how you see those interrelating or not in your story. Yeah, well, of course, when we talk about a speculative boom, we're talking about a major historical event. And like other historical events, they have multiple causes. And no historian is ever able to write a very simple story of anything, right? That's, there's always other factors. Uh, one other factor that comes to my mind, uh, relevant to the recent boom, is, uh, well, I take it way back to the, uh, the Thatcher-Reagan revolution and the uh, newfound respect for free markets. That found its expression in 19... Uh, see, what was it? Uh, 1980, I believe, the, the um, Depository in Institutions uh, Deregulation and Monetary Control Act, which eliminated ceilings on mortgage loans. And it then created a possibility for a subprime industry. Before then, it was entirely a government industry of lending to uh, low uh, of poor credit borrowers because no one else could do it. You couldn't charge a high rate to compensate you for this. Uh, and so is so that, that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, I, th I think it is a good thing to let markets function. Um, but the problem was that we didn't, well, there wasn't uh, the accustomed regulation of these new lenders and the lenders were operating increasingly as the 90s wore on into the 2000s in a bubble atmosphere without the kind of regulation that banks have. And uh, they, they were at the same time innovating. The subprime loans were innovations, and the securitization of them were innovations. And under which certain, made it which made it easier for institutions to lend to the to that market, which also seems yeah. like a good thing. So I'm going to keep pushing. Yeah, I that. do think those are good things. Now, I, you know, the, when bad things happen in history, too, it's it's difficult to point a finger of blame. Uh, well, sometimes you can, but you, lots of people are in between. They're, maybe they're geniuses, or maybe they're scoundrels, and we can't quite decide which because everyone's faced with all kinds of compromises in life. But I think the underlying force, for my mind, was the general assumption. It was the received conventional wisdom that home prices can never fall. And so that that's part of the bubble. In fact, that got a little bit distorted into home prices are the best investment ever. Uh, and so uh, everyone who is smart should get leveraged. Uh, and that really was a theme. It's not my imagination. No, I know. If I you look at that. investment advice books, a, a lot of them were just... Uh, you know, like we're letting you in on the secret that the in people know, and that is that you can the best investment you'll ever make is this uh, investment in housing, and the leverage will just push it up to this tremendous rate of profit. Yeah, and they never mentioned the possibility of a correction. Yeah, there are a lot of late night infomercials: become a millionaire, buy houses, put no money down, and we'll show you how, and all that. And it rang really true because while this guy's watching the infomercial. He, the next day, he talks to his neighbor, and he hears a story about somebody down the street who made, you know, huge amounts of money, more than his entire job for the year, doing just that. And then you see, well, when is this going to end? I don't see any end to this. 
the idea that there could be a crash in home prices, it doesn't even sound real. I mean, nobody's saying that. I mean, I can imagine things. I could imagine there'll be another famine or who knows what or black plague. But those are all things in remote history that uh, modern times don't see anymore. And so uh, you might quite rationally think, well, nobody else thinks that prices could ever drop, so it's a money machine for me. Of course. That's what I think. And so that also explains the... See, that's why I think that it's definitely related. The, the subprime mortgage boom was related to the failure to think about the bubble. Uh, and the, 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 it was really a view that home prices really couldn't fall, not by very much. And if they did fall, it would only be a little while, and they'd be right back up. So I, I agree with that. I, I think... There's no doubt it appears – it's a little bit more complicated maybe, but it appears that a lot of financial institutions uh, were incautious, uh, acquired bundles of assets, these mortgages that were actually quite risky. Uh, these assets became riskier when prices started to fall and then soon became very close to worthless. And other institutions that had lent on the basis of those uh, portfolios found themselves holding collateral that – wasn't very good, uh, to their surprise, and presumably their lack of caution uh, led to them pursuing these asset returns that seemed like sure things that turned out not to be. Now, that happens, of course, all the time in, in a market economy. People take risks and are told of sure things that turn out not to be true. People make mistakes. People take risks that turn out to be quite serious that they were, were not aware of, and people do really stupid things. And then what happens usually is you lose your money uh, or you lose your job if you're an investor, uh, an officer in an investment bank that did this because the firm goes bankrupt. Why is there more to the story? Uh, why do you believe uh, – what's, what's, the, what's the narrative that suggests that this is something that is either new or, or, or a crisis? And I think there is such a case, yeah. but I'd like to hear you say it. Well, there, it isn't anything fundamentally new, and it isn't a crisis that doesn't have uh, – it isn't associated with benefits. It isn't new because speculative bubbles have gone, go back hundreds of years. Uh, and as a crisis, you could also say that economies that have better developed financial markets have more more booms and busts, but uh, that, that's a reflection of the freedom that people have to act on their own, in their own interest. And, do stupid and that things same freedom gives them, makes them uh, uh, prosper on the, on the whole. So uh, I'm not saying there is a, quote, problem. I, in my, my new book, Subprime Solution, I... I try to pose it as an opportunity that when we see something wrong that goes more than the usual amount wrong uh, and when it happens to a lot of people at the same time, that's an opportunity for us to advance. And if you'll note, most of my book is really about helping financial markets work better, and that means expanding them, not contracting them. Absolutely. And I, you know, I want to come to that in a minute, but I want to still stick a little bit more with the diagnosis yeah. of the disease first. Uh, does the Fed bear any blame for this? Some observers would argue that the Fed, by lowering interest rates artificial, to artificially low levels, inevitably artificially caused uh, housing prices to go up. Well, okay. Uh, it is a fact that in the early, two, I think from 2003, 2002 to 2005, I believe the uh, real federal funds rate was negative. Uh, and we hadn't had such... Uh, expansionary policy in those terms since the 70s. Uh, and so it's not surprising, although it, the 70s launched a, a sort of real estate boom, but it wasn't as big, much smaller than the, the present one, much more localized. But this time it, it uh, was a, a really at the time of the, of the peak of the boom. And so I think that uh, that is a part of the story. It's, it's not as much of the story as many people think for uh, there are other countries that also had real estate booms where real rates were not so low for so long. So I, I think that let's not exaggerate the story. Yeah. The other thing is that even that story is, can be thought of as another expression of the same problem, namely that the Federal Reserve didn't see that there was any problem, that they didn't see there was any risk of a correction in the housing market. So it was just not on their radar to worry about the housing market. 
And so they, they saw no reason not to keep real rates very low. And they didn't see, I don't think Alan Greenspan was uh, uh, acknowledging that he was taking a big risk with the economy by keeping, rate, with the real estate market by keeping rates so low. He just didn't seem to focus on that at all. Again, it's this mysterious failure to perceive the possibility that home prices could fall that I think is the biggest single explanation for the events. Well, I, I, I think that's part of it, perhaps, although, again, many of us uh, were alive in the 1980s and do remember the, the time when housing prices, certainly in the markets that had gone the craziest, uh, did fall. But that was a long time ago. People do forget it. They do get excited about, about the possibility. But going back to the Fed, I think one of the stranger aspects of this whole housing market situation, you write about a little bit in the book, is whether we want high prices or low prices. I think a lot of people, when confronted with the possibility that the Fed was juicing up housing prices, would say, well, that's just an extra bonus. They'd say, well, because you know, a lot of Americans own homes. And yet, so housing prices, when they're going up, everyone says it's great because it's an asset. When they're going down, everyone says it's horrible, but they forget the fact that there are a lot of people wanting to buy houses who benefit from low prices and who are punished by high prices. So it's, I know. That's, it's isn't that amazing? It's amazing how people think. I don't know. Um, most of us have children, or at least we care about the next generation. And so from that family perspective, what's the advantage of high home prices? Um, at least that's the way I view it, that you're, you want your kids and you want the next generation, and you want to see economic growth continuing and prosperity so you want to see incomes outpacing home prices. Well, housing is a very strange asset because we live in the house. You don't live in a stock certificate. And it's, um, of course, in, in many areas, very expensive to live in particular places um, if you want to have a house of a certain quality. But I, l l let me push this um, real side explanation a little bit and get your reaction to it. Let me give you an alternative story. Uh, l let me argue that the housing boom of the last 10, 12 years is, is a real phenomenon. It's not a, it's not a speculative bubble. That the run-up in housing prices was largest in areas where there were increases in demand. Uh, those increases in demand might say come from an increase in Washington, D.C. from expansion of the federal government response to 9-11. So as a proud owner of a house in the Washington, D.C. area, having moved here five years ago, I bought very close to the peak, unfortunately, not not at quite the peak, but but, un, but unpleasantly close, and that that was due mostly, say, to just a normal standard increase in demand. There was a uh, expansion due to the the IT information technology boom, part of it a bubble, but part of it a genuine boom in the Silicon Valley Bay Area. So not surprisingly, housing prices in Palo Alto, where I was this summer, are you know, maybe double if you control for quality of house to my house in Washington, D.C., which is about double what it was in St. Louis, where I moved from. So actually, prices aren't really so irrational. They reflect real-side uh, demand effects. And on the supply side, we have zoning laws that restrict uh, housing, and we have increases in the price of lumber that can drive up the price. And isn't it possible that much of the run-up then was explainable by real factors? And in particular, James Hamilton has written that the decrease in prices is not largest in areas that it had the biggest booms, but in elsewhere where there were these subprime forfeitures due to people making bad loans and, and bad decisions. Oh, you brought up a lot of things. Yeah, take your time. <laughs> uh, Sorry, such a long question. Yeah. Uh, first of all, fundamentals do matter. I'm not saying they don't. They do affect home prices. So, for example, we've noted that employment in a region is correlated Positively, you know, when there's a uh, a boom of uh, in industry in a region, of course, home prices will go up. And when the industry crashes, well, look for example at at Michigan. Right now, the home price decline there is related to the decline of the auto industry. Right. And they didn't have such a boom, so maybe that's what Jim Hamilton is referring to. Other things are happening too. Uh, uh, although I, I have to say that some of the places where home prices are falling the fastest are places where there were huge booms, like Las Vegas, Phoenix, San Diego, Miami. Uh, so I, I'm not, I haven't seen this paper by Hamilton. Uh, I, I'm just thinking of Michigan as the example that he might be, that sort of thing. So uh, I'm not saying that fundamentals don't matter. Uh, and in fact, 
the housing market over the last century, according to my data, the aggregate housing market has not been very bubbly. Uh, it was bubbly only in certain areas. It's interesting that the uh, housing boom, uh, in this case, in the early 2000s, was substantially mirrored in places that have had booms, bubbles before. So Florida and California are among the prominent areas of, uh, of a, that are considered bubbly in the current in the recent the bubble of the 2000s. But there was a huge boom and bubble in Florida in the 1920s, and there was a huge bubble in California in the 1880s. So it's happened in those areas before. This is the, this is the sourdough bread explanation. The reason that sourdough bread is, is so good in San Francisco is the air. There's just something about it. So it's just if you're living in <laughs> Florida or California, you just can't control yourself. <laughs> uh, I would put it a little differently right. that uh, markets are driven by stories. Uh, and uh, the idea that you're going to get rich investing in real estate somewhere just isn't plausible in Milwaukee. Uh, and it isn't plausible, you know, in Toledo, Ohio, or who knows. Uh, we're kind of a celebrity conscious culture. Well, it's not just us. Maybe it's our species in some sense. But with the advent of the media, certain cities and areas become celebrity areas. So, uh, and people's imaginations are stimulated by that. Uh, and uh, so those things, I think, were driving the current crisis. Now, you, you tend to have economists who loosely throw around uh, arguments that fundamentals drive everything. And it's a little hard to get on top of all of those arguments. Now, you and I both know, uh, as professional economists, that you can run regressions. Uh, and you can throw in a lot of variables, and you you often get a spurious fit. It's called data mining. And so it's very hard to judge when some professional economist gets on TV and says it's driven by some factor or another. And But most people never evaluate it. They just accept the stories, and it becomes part of the part of the bubble. Part of the folklore. Now, you mentioned zoning laws. That's a very interesting social phenomenon, uh, which goes back, uh, if you know the, the meaning of a zoning law, the, the idea, zoning was invented in Germany in the late 19th century, and it was a new idea. And I, I explained what the new idea was. The idea was that a city would lay out a map of the city with zones, and there'd be a zoning commission. And each zone would be zoned for a certain kind of construction. And that was the plan. And if you wanted to deviate from that, you had to get a permit. And you had to go before the zoning board before you started to build. That was the idea. That was a new idea in the late 19th century. It couldn't take root in the United States until a Supreme Court decision in the 1920s allowed that. Because uh, there wasn't any authority for a city government to make that kind of intrusive uh, 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 interventions on people's free use of their own private land. So once we introduce zoning law, it has gradually grown. Uh, but even before zoning law, there were effective requirements on the use of land, uh, by uh, like anti-nuisance laws. People could always sue some a landowner. Uh, for creating a nuisance or something like that after the person already built. And so it's not new. It's been around for a long time. There is a perception that zoning laws have gotten stronger, but it's not entirely clear whether that's true and what the longer-run outlook of that is. It's part of the story. Why should they have gotten stronger? We've had zoning laws, and they were introduced widely in the 1920s after the Supreme Court decision. Uh, and are they getting stronger now, and why should that be? Uh, maybe it is. Maybe it's going the other way. Um, so, so that's, But that's part of the story that, he, that people tell. And I think it's overblown. Uh, I think that the future of, of the enforcement of zoning laws is a political thing, uh, which is uh, ephemeral and hard to judge. Uh, and yet people have taken it as just kind of a new force of nature, it's part of the new era story that has been used to justify 
the expectation of phenomenal future increases in home prices. Well, yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to claim that it's it's the explanation, as I sir, as you point out, I I don't have any empirical evidence on the magnitude of the contribution it might make. Although I suspect I know there are people who've tried to look at it. I don't know how successful they've been. One of the challenges in this whole discussion, as you point out, is that there are so many factors involved. Carefully doling out blame or explanation for each one is quite challenging given the limitations of real-world data. Before we go any further, could you talk for a little, a few minutes about your contribution to the collection of the data on these issues? You said it very quickly in passing in, my da- in our data or in my data. Talk about the index that you created and just a little bit about the mechanics of it, why you created how you created it, and how it's been used. Well, in the uh, late 1980s, 20 years ago, uh, Carl Case, he's a professor at Wellesley, uh, and I uh, created uh, home price indexes using a repeat sales methodology. Actually, uh, uh, Carl, or Chip, as we call him, uh, had uh, independently rediscovered a method that had been uh, used as early as the 1920s. But we worked on it and improved it. And uh, we, we were the first people to start producing repeat sales home price indices. Explain what that is. Well, the idea is that we should infer cha- the, the, the problem. The, the most home price indices, well, uh, the most prominent home price index when we wrote was the, uh, the median home price. Uh, all they would do is take all the sales in an area and compute the median, and that was the index. But the problem with that is that the mix of homes changes from time to time. So sometimes the west side of town will have a lot of sales, and that might be the high-priced area of town. And other times the other side of town may have high sales. And so there are lots of things like that that happen. It was a very volatile series because of that, right? Right. And so uh, we created a series based only on the change in prices of individual homes. So that uh, we never mixed homes, we never changed the mix of homes, and and we had an econometric technique that that did that effectively and efficiently. And then when we produced uh, the price indexes, which we published in the late 1980s, they were astonishingly smooth through time. And we published an article in the American Economic Review, Case and I, uh, pointing out the incredible inefficiency of the home market. In fact, it was kind of appalling. Unlike the stock market, which looks like a random walk, the housing market just goes in trends for years. Uh, And how can that be? Well, it seems to me that it's because of transactions costs in dealing in that market. But it's also just that nobody sees the data. (laughs) There is no good index. There was no good index. Other people had invented repeat sales indices, but no one was producing them on an ongoing basis. We were able to do so because of the electronic revolution, ultimately. We were able to buy electronic files in the late 1980s with massive numbers of home prices. And then to get, it, to get the older data, what did you do that wasn't electronically available? Uh, our data went back to the 70s. It, it was electronic. We, they had computers. No, no, but some of them went back into the 60s. <laughs> there were computers. You know, the, the computer was invented in the 40s. Yeah, no, I, I actually... Uh, <laughs> I've actually used cards. I'm a, I'm a real dinosaur myself. Uh, but your index goes back way before 1960, correct? Well, then, in my book, the second edition of my book, I wanted to see... I, I, when I, I was in writing the second edition to Irrational Exuberance, I wanted to do what I had done for the stock market, for the housing market, namely have a long historical series of home prices. But I asked around, and I found that nobody had one. So I did the best I could, uh, and I found various indices that had been bits and pieces published here and there. And if I thought they were good indices, namely representing fairly well the, the price of an unchanging house, uh, I, I, I used them, and I spliced together a home price index from 1890 to the present. Uh, and I don't mean to say that it's the last word, I, uh, but it's the only one. You know, it's just amazing <laughs> to me word. that no one else does this. Uh, it's dirty work, you know. I guess it's dirty it's work. Economists, yeah. economists don't like to get... <laughs> it's not really even dirty work, but for an economist, it's pretty close. 
Okay, um, I do dirty work. Let, let it's me, part of my personality. Let me ask you a technical question, if, and if it gets too technical, we'll uh, we'll switch gears. But one of the challenges when you're doing a series like that is dealing with new home construction, and clearly the trend in new home construction in the United States, especially over the last 35 years or so, has been toward dramatically larger houses. Now, once they're in the index, obviously they when they the, when they turn over they're going to have the you'll have controlled for that but how do you how do you control for the fact that the stock of housing in the United States has dramatically uh changed over the last 30 or 50 or, or years well uh you know I talked about this in my 1993 book macro markets uh that's what my firm is named we have a firm now called macro markets but in that book I made. I thought we should do what people do with stock price indexes as much as possible. If you look at any stock price index uh, that goes over a long interval and compare the list of stocks that comprise the index, uh, as it, you see that it changes substantially through time. It has to, right. because the, the the companies are not static, and new companies come up and old companies fail or are merged into new companies. So we had to do something as close as possible to that as we could with our indices. So when Case and I developed our indices, we wanted them to be tradable. And uh, we wanted them, them to represent the value of the housing stock in the same way that some index like the S&P 500 represents the value of the stock market. So as I described in my book, the indices that we produced are modeled after the S&P 500. That's why we're very pleased to get S&P finally producing our home price index. So they're now called the Standard & Poor Case-Shiller Home Price Indices. But they were designed with the idea of creating trading markets. And I've always felt that that's where indices matter the most. And so we we tried to make the analog for stock price indices. Ours are value-weighted, just as the S&P 500 is. Right. So let, let's get back to the to the diagnosis and tie, tie this in. So you create this index, which allows uh, wise, foresighted people to make money and not so wise, not so, uh, and myopic people to lose money trading this index uh, based on their expectation of what the future is going to hold. So let me ask you, why are we in a, why would you call this a crisis? Given that most of the time, as you point out, the housing market has been fairly smooth. In the last, say, 10 years, certainly maybe perhaps worse the last four or five, uh, some people speculated either through their own purchases or through the buying of financial instruments, and they made mistakes. They lost money. So why is this something that I, that you and I say, hoping that we didn't participate in the wrong way in this, why should we worry about this and relative to any other uh, set of mistakes that people make in their investing behavior? Uh, Why is it a crisis as opposed uh, to just a serious – what's the systemic part of it? Yeah, there's so many different ways that this question might take us. One thing is the systemic externality. Yeah, that's what that, I'd like you to uh, talk about. Yeah, that uh, operates both through institutional and through psychological channels. So what we've seen in the current crisis starting in 2007 when the magnitude of home price declines – first became palpable, uh, we saw uh, securities uh, downvalued dramatically, securities based on subprime mortgages. Uh, and then we saw a chain of dominoes effects in, uh, starting in the, in the uh, financial markets. And uh, remember Ben Bernanke testified before uh, a congressional committee that when Bear Stearns went under, or was in danger of going under, we, we were faced with a very serious problem that could uh, spread through contagion through the whole financial sector and cause a, a collapse. Uh, he said it, uh, and I thought it was kind of strange to hear that from the head of the Federal Reserve, because usually... They don't like to make alarmist talk, but he definitely did. I guess because he had to justify what we did, which was government bailout. He did of something. This firm. Yeah, he did something radical that actually enhanced his. Uh, I'm, I'm agnostic on whether a, a true crisis was in the offing, but certainly 
the result of that decision was to enhance the power of the Fed and his uh, scope of his activity. So I, I view him as a as a less than disinterested spectator. Um, as, as, well, I I don't know. I, I, I he, I'm not being cynical about yeah. the man. I don't know him, and I'm not judging him. I'm just saying it's interesting to me that there's no real evidence outside of his kind of that kind of testimony that we stood on the brink of a crisis. How do we well, know? Yeah. Well, that's the unfortunate thing is that we don't know these crises occur. We we do know that there have been terrible crises in history, uh, and the last one was the Great Depression, and uh, it's imperfectly understood. Uh, and the relevance of the Great Depression is imperfectly understood to today's economy because we have so many protections in place, like deposit insurance. Uh, that that were uh, or the uh, that were set up in response to that crisis, or the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve. Federal Reserve was really set up in response to the 1907 crisis. It took them and a while the to figure. 1913 crisis. But it took them a while to figure it out, unfortunately. So they they might have done something more productive in 1933, they, they but they didn't. Nobody knows. These crises occur at intervals of decades. So nobody, and we don't know when we've had near misses and where it didn't happen. It seems plausible, and so nobody knows. I suppose. What if, what if uh, Ben Bernanke had said, "Let Bear Stearns fail"? Sure. Well, we do know that Bear Stearns was counterparty on a huge number of financial contracts, uh, and the, the 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 volume of those, as tabulated by ISDA or the BIS, is just staggering. There's over fifty trillion dollars of credit default swaps, and massively more than that of interest rate swaps, and Typically, you know, you kind of imagine, how could it be such a big number? Well, it's because people typically, um, they do canceling trades rather than uh, to offset. One contract is offset with another. Uh, And they think that, you know, you make a contract with one counterparty, and then you make an offsetting contract with another counterparty, and then you're safe. But you're not safe if there's a a major failure of of somebody like Bear Stearns, because they're in everywhere. Uh, and so it's going to be a huge mess. And it's plausible that if Bear Stearns is just not living up to any of its contracts, and it's all in a bankruptcy court, that everything gets seized up. And what, what we've observed in history is there have been financial crises, it's happened many times, when trading suddenly stops because nobody can figure out what's going on, uh, and an atmosphere of pessimism develops. Uh, and it's it's certainly plausible. I don't know what would have happened, but it's certainly plausible that Bernanke was right. And I wouldn't accuse him. You didn't accuse him, but I wouldn't accuse him of of uh, of overreacting to this event. Well, let me say it a different way then. I, I don't know if he overreacted, and that's part of the problem, as you really point out at the beginning of your your, your response. Uh, the non-transparency of this issue, to me, is a major part of the problem. So let's let's turn to possible solutions that you suggest in the subprime solution, and let's evaluate some of those. What we have right now, unfortunately, which which I find upsetting, is the Fed acting in an ad hoc and discretionary way, in a non-transparent way, justified by. I understand it that Ben Bernanke would not want. The Great Depression to occur on his watch, a second one. I mentioned this before on Econ Talk. He's a scholar of the Great Depression. It would be particularly embarrassing for that to happen. And so I assume his incentives, somewhat aligned with ours, <laughs> are to prevent another financial meltdown or, or depression, which is good. But he also is particularly anxious about it. And he's not, unfortunately, the costs of avoiding such a depression are not borne by him. They're born right, by all right. of us, and that's the problem I think we have with financial yeah, I, regulation right now. I, I often think about uh, agency problems with the Fed chairman as well. It seems to me that they uh, a, a different example, maybe I already uh, suggested, was that at a time of a boom, they are reluctant to do anything to squelch the boom, like say something, or say, they're un, uh, they're un, unwilling to talk uh, seriously about risks to the economy because right. of the, the fear that they could be blamed for yeah. having started a, uh, a financial collapse. And so then we got, we tended to get blandly optimistic statements. Uh, 
So I, I think you're right that a Fed chairman is not entirely disinterested. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I like Ben Bernanke. I, I imagine that he is. Uh, he, he, you know, there, there, people do have a, uh, a sense of public service as well, and I imagine that that factors into his decision making as well. Oh, I have no doubt about it. He seems to be a fine human being. Uh, as from all we can tell, I don't know him personally. Unfortunately, uh, all public servants are able to eventually convince themselves that what serves them also serves the public. So it is a difficult uh, distinction to make, I think, sometimes. But I don't want to suggest that he has failed to make that distinction. But you uh, know, my book is not about just the Fed. Uh, I know. So let's move on to let's let's I move know. to other areas. The what, Fed is a 1913 uh, invention to help stabilize the economy, but there's many other avenues. What would you recommend to make financial markets work more effectively? Yeah, well, in my book, I have three avenues. One is to, to improve the uh, financial information infrastructure. Two is to expand the scope of markets so that more risks are traded. And three is to improve retail products. Uh, to help. All, all three of these help what I call democratize finance. And really, what I'm proposing is to take this opportunity to ex- continue a trend that we've already seen for over a century of democratizing finance. That is making it, financial principles work, markets work, but we have to extend the scope of all of this financial functioning so that it helps more and more people. And basically the financial crisis that we're in now is a failure, is a result of a failure to apply the basic principles of risk management well. And so that's what we have to do. We have to improve uh, our ways of managing risks. How can we do that? Yeah. Well. Okay. Well, one thing. I, <laughs> there's so many, so much to say about this. Uh, as I said before, at least ten minutes, and I'll give you more minutes. if you'd like. Go ahead. Okay. One thing that uh, comes to mind to say is that people were encouraged in the recent environment to put leveraged investments into real estate in one city as their portfolio. So we have millions of people who had highly risky, undiversified portfolios for their life savings. They were basically depending on a government program called Social Security as their protection for their retirement because they were putting money in in a very risky way. So one proposal that I have in my book uh, is uh, and this is under the category of retail products, is that we should have mortgages which are risk managing for the, mor- the, the mortgager, the homeowner. That is, the, uh, the mortgage would, I call them continuous workout mortgages. They would have built into them the kind of workout that we give to homeowners when they get in trouble, but not only at a certain crisis time, but continuously all the time. So I'd like to see mortgage payments uh, uh, indexed to home prices so that if home prices go down, the mortgage balance uh, and payment goes down. Would that be a national index that you would use to set those regional, local? I'm trying to set a new standard for mortgages. What was done in the 1930s in response to that housing crisis is a new standard for mortgages was set. They moved from the uh, five-year rolling uh, balloon payment mortgage to the self-amortizing uh, long-term mortgage, 15 or more years. Uh, and that was a good step because it eliminated uh, at least the immediate problem of that crisis. But they could have moved further forward. And I'm thinking that what what's happening now, we're seeing it with the um, Housing and Economic Recovery Act of 2008. And... Uh, uh, which is a bail, a, they call it a bailout of, of homeowners. Uh, that is a after the fact imposition of a workout. What I would like to see is to plan it from the beginning and make it part of the mortgage contract, which both the borrower and lender go into with both eyes open. Uh, and so it's priced out, uh, just as insurance is priced out, but it protects the homeowner against a uh, decline in home prices. So would a bank listening to this podcast uh, find that to be an attractive competitive offering, do you think, in this current market? I mean, and well, I, and yeah, me... I know. This is, this is uh, I'm, I'm trying to think uh, to how to make fundamental changes, mm-hmm. and not just 
Band-Aids. Yep. And uh, one thing that I've been working on with my people at Macro Markets and at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange and at Standard & Poor's is we've created futures markets for single-family homes. And they're trading at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange now for two years. Uh, we have them for 10 cities and for a national index. And the idea, although they're not... Uh, they're not very active. Um, we, we keep working on trying to get more people into them. You but be thicker. The, we'd like to have thicker markets. Once they become much deeper markets, then uh, mortgage issuers can issue these continuous workout mortgages and hedge themselves against the risk. And th- so that means the risk of home price uh, movements would be substantially shifted to uh, what's an international marketplace. And that allows it to become part of portfolios all over the world and therefore to spread the risk. This is, this is just basic uh, theoretical finance applied wasn't, to a risk that has never been managed well. It wasn't the same argument used for the justification of the subprime mortgage market to start with? Absolutely, right? so yeah. yeah. And that's why I think the, the, the securitization of subprime mortgages was uh, progress. Uh, the fact that we have a blow-up is not faulting the core idea. It was faulting. It was a problem with the implementation. Absolutely. <clears throat> I do want to point out that that some of the people who lost their shirt in that market were very savvy and uh, educated people. So I, I'm not sure that financial education. Well, you, I'm not. You're not saying it that it alone would would solve anything, but it would perhaps help. Um, I mean, That's I, another part of my book is financial education right. and I, financial advice. Right. That I, people I, should, yeah. yeah I, I long for a world where people have an incentive to educate themselves rather than one where it is either imposed from the outside or um, – I, mean, I, I think that's a major problem we have right now that, we, as you say, over the last century, finance has become and, – and assets have become increasingly democratic. The number of people who have access to uh, – to assets and, and to home ownership has expanded dramatically. I think that's to the good, and I think the more of that we have, the more incentive people will have to educate themselves about the risk. But the problem with the current crisis is that it could cause a reversal of these good trends. That's correct, and that's one thing that I want to try in my book to uh, to prevent. Well, I I do think one of the biggest things people seem to forget about this the current situation is that in, in the subprime area. Uh, a lot of people got to own homes and still do own homes that they wouldn't have otherwise without these instruments. Right. <laughs> we were in a, I think we're in agreement on a lot of things. Well, it just gets forgotten. It gets treated <laughs> yeah. as if somehow this disease got got uh, spread, and so as a result, we ended up with a catastrophe. And although there are many parts of it that are both personally and hu- the human side is very bad and potential systemic effects, there were a lot of positive things about it. And I worry about the costs of the so-called solutions. Um and their implications for, for financial liquidity down the road. I think that's the – we don't want to lose that. It's very important. Um, anything else you want to talk about uh, with respect to what might make these things better? That Those are very interesting and creative ideas you're talking about with, with – uh, although you didn't quite answer it. Would a bank find such a, an opportunity to be a profitable instrument in the marketplace, do you think? We have uh... – talk to banks and insurance companies about the new mortgage concepts uh, and uh, I think the uh, we get enthusiastic responses. There's another thing I didn't mention is home equity insurance which could be offered separate from a mortgage. Uh, we get enthusiastic responses and I, I have a sense that something may happen soon. Uh, of course the obstacle I mentioned is that we don't yet have a liquid market for home price derivatives. But there's other kinds of things happening. For example, securities tied to home prices uh, or swaps or forwards. And these have, uh, in the UK, there's a lot of commercial uh, uh, real estate uh, derivatives trading now, over 10 billion pounds recently. So things are happening. Uh, and I, I, I think that in the next few years, we may see a lot more uh, willingness of institutions to consider better risk management products once they see the markets, the hedging markets for them to to manage the risk they 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 take. 
So I, I think that we're, uh, you know, the financial markets have shown progress in every decade of the last century, and I think the next decade will bring some important progress, and I'm hopeful that we'll see further democratization of, of uh, financial markets. You mentioned the Housing Recovery Act. I don't remember the formal name, but uh, you have a lot of interesting things to say in the book about – and I, I want to mention, by the way, uh, two things that, I, that are important. We're, t- we're taping this, first of all, on September 5th, 2008, which you may be listening to this in 2009 or 2010, dear listeners out there. So I want you to know where the perspective – the time perspective of this conversation. But I also want to mention that your book – is uh, 178 pages long, and it's a non-technical book. So for people who are interested in these issues, it's an extremely accessible treatment. Um, But you have a lot of interesting things to say in the book about uh, fairness and bailouts. Uh, What I would like you to speculate about and and comment on is, and we'll close with this, is Congress did something. It's kind of a a little bit of a Band-Aid, certainly in the sense of a, any kind of systemic solution of the kind we're discussing right now, mainly designed to soften the financial impact of some bad decisions or unlucky decisions on the part of lenders and borrowers. Um, what if nothing happens beyond that? Uh, what do you forecast? Do you have any thoughts on how... Nothing the, happens. I mean, Congress doesn't yeah, no do political. Anything. There's no political solution. There's no new... Uh, Deposit insurance, regulations of banks, uh, the Fed doesn't expand its mandate, and we uh, just go forward. How, how do you, what do you think would happen? Well, I, I think that there are signs right now in September of 2008 of uh, a weakening world economy. Uh, so we've seen negative growth in Europe and Japan and home price uh, uh, debacles in many places. Uh, and I think that if we don't do anything... Uh, we might be in for a uh, serious recession. Uh, and uh, I, I don't know what you mean, not do anything. You, you do think the Fed is going to continue in its normal counter-cyclical Correct. policy. Yeah, I'm, by doing anything, I mean do nothing specifically to address the housing issue. I mean, we, we're about to have a, we're about to embark on a, on a presidential campaign. We may end up with a mixed government of a Republican president, a Democratic Congress, who may end up uh, with a Democratic Congress and a Democratic president, I doubt the other is going to happen. But either way, it's hard to know whether either of those outcomes is going to cause a, a radical or dramatic policy Im- intervention in the housing market. And I, I think a lot of politicians are going to take a wait-and-see attitude. And let's, well, yeah, and, I, I, I think there's nature. a risk of kind of a Japan-style outcome. Uh, and that uh, it, it's, it's always different every time. But, I mean, there's a risk of a of a slow economy for some time going forward. And there's a risk of some kind of social bad feeling that uh, expresses itself in labor markets with greater unrest and uh, makes it uh, with less willingness of entrepreneurs to take risks and feel uh, confident uh, of the economy going forward. And so everything kind of slows down for, for quite a while. Uh, and uh, that's a bad outcome, but it's not. Uh, I, I don't predict anything as bad as the Great Depression. <laughs> I don't think. I think it's uh, it's not good to, to slow progress down. But uh, and I could see that happening if if we have a, a continuing declines in home prices, and we see. I'm not saying that's going to happen, but if that happened, it could cause. Uh, kind of a consumer disaffection, uh, and just a general slowdown. It just then it wouldn't be a, uh, the next decade wouldn't be an inspired decade. So in Japan, they call it the lost decade. Uh, and so, uh, and there, there, there could be, in, you know, I, I'm speculating here, there could be increases in crime rates or other social problems. All these things are hard to predict. No one understands even after the fact why they happened, but... Well, the world had a lost decade, 1930. Um, yeah, right, and that wasn't good. No, it was a bad thing. Uh, although, rather remarkably, um, post-war, certainly the recovery was rather extraordinary across across countries as well, not just in the United States. Um, I guess I, you know, I think Congress will take a wait and see attitude. If 
if housing prices plunge, they will do something, whether it will be good or bad, of course, remains to be seen. But I, if they don't plunge, I suspect they will ride it out, and we'll, we'll find out what happens as a result. Um, it'll be an interesting time. Well, these are interesting times for economists, <laughs> I think. Well, I agree, and I hope for Econ Talk. My guest today has been Robert Schiller of Yale University. Thanks for being part of Econ Talk. It was fun. Nice talking to you. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.